Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Amplify Archaeology Podcast is sponsored by TUA. If you'd like to dig into online courses on Irish archaeology and heritage, if you'd like to uncover the story of hundreds of monuments around Ireland, go exploring with itineraries featuring hidden gems and secret sites, or join us on one of our talks or tours, check out tour.ie. There's a new book out, and it's a landmark publication. It's called Death in Irish Prehistory. It's by Professor Gabriel Cooney. It's a book about life and death over eight and a half thousand years in Ireland. And as the book describes, the richness of the mortuary record that we have for Irish prehistory is a highlight of the archaeological record. And because we're dealing with how people cope with death, this extended and diverse record of mortuary practice is also relevant to understanding how we deal with death today, which is just a central social issue as it always was. I really enjoyed this discussion with Gabriel, but as prehistory covers a good eight and a half thousand years or more, I thought it'd be better to break the episode into two parts. This first part, we'll look at the archaeology of death and how we know what we know. The second part will be a journey through time, looking at each of the different periods, where the continuity is, where the changes, and how approaches to death might develop over time. I really hope you enjoy the show. I'm delighted today to be joined by Professor Gabriel Cooney. We're going to be talking about his new publication, Death in Irish Prehistory, which is Honestly, one of the the most insightful, um, beautifully produced books I've read on Irish archaeology in a very long time. I, I think it's a it's a real testament to it. It covers an awful lot of ground, though. That's that's the nature of prehistory. Um, but Gabriel, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much for joining me today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Neil. And thanks for thanks for engaging in the conversation. <laughs> well, we we might before we get stuck into the kind of prehistory and the way people treated the dead then we might start I suppose with a little bit of cultural relativism because I think the way people treat the dead today is very varied very varied indeed and I grew up in northern England I'm a you know I'm a Catholic um, and even with that we have very different Mm. sort of practices Mm. around death uh, even though you've got a very similar culture, identical religion in, in many ways. For example, we don't do the removal in the wake. Mm. Uh, and all they do still in some parts of Liverpool, where I am in St. Helens, we didn't do that. Uh, so I was really surprised to see those differences. Here we have two traditions, both Catholic, both very similar, cultural, geographic, you know, in terms of class and everything else. Um, but we've still got these profound differences so we must be heading into very very different waters when we consider the treatment of the departed in in prehistory or or do you see some threads of connection to the way that we might treat our dead today yeah i do actually neil i, I mean i i think at one level it, it influenced it sorry it, what you've just described demonstrates how traditions are influenced by wider society so this mm. contrast if you could call it between the two islands in a sense 
although there are parts of the UK as well where you've got a similarity to what we do in Ireland. And and of course, Thomas Lynch has said this, you know, one of the good, one of the things the Irish are good at is having a body in the room. Yeah. And and I think that captures it. And, and um, so going back to the link between past and present, one of the things I try and drive in the book is this notion that there are these you know, at different times, there were these w- tr- structuring principles, the way society operated, as reflected in material culture, we can, which we can see very broadly over quite big areas. Mm. And then when you come to the evidence of what happens on the ground within those traditions, you see how different communities did things quite differently, using the same kind of materials, the same pots, but were employed in different ways. So I think there's that notion of, what we often talk about is kind of human agency, where mm. we do we, we we respond as people in a different way, uh, depending on our communal context, our regional context, and and then and then very often we employ these, as I say, socially structuring principles to work for us. And I think, in a sense, that's that's what we're seeing in this very interesting contrast you pointed out at the start between Ireland and and, and in your case, uh, Northern England. Um, and it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I've often had colleagues, you know, say, who, who come from the UK and say, particularly to funerals, you know, mm. are, are we more or less, they're waiting for an invitation to come. And of course, in Ireland, everybody's, if, you don't, if you're not going to that funeral, then it's yeah. about it's about celebrating the person yeah, as well as about bidding farewell to them. And I think that's a, that's a point we get. And, and just add a, a point, you know, but I think one relevant to our conversation this morning, uh, on the day they launched the book, I was at David Sweetman's funeral in yeah. in Darlaston. and and to me this and there was a couple of people there who said this it all seemed to fit yeah. in terms of both this you know celebration of the life of a very well known archaeologist and at the same time launching a book about death in Irish prehistory. And it's kind of and I think it's part of the yeah the the interests and and concern we have for the treatment of the dead, which is what I wanted to illustrate in terms of the distant past in, in the book. Yeah, that, that's it. it. It says so much, death says so much about life yeah. in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, and when I was reading the book, uh, you know, it took me back. I, I was in, um, when I was about 17, I was doing some voluntary work in Madarashtra in India. Mm. And I was out in a tribal village in it was a good way outside of, I think, sort of Nagpur kind of direction. Um, but there were two funerals when mm. we were there. One mm. uh, was the funeral of a little girl who died just before we'd arrived. She was mm. only a, maybe about three mm. or four. Mm. And one, and another one then towards the end of our, our time there was for a village elder. Mm. And the little girl was buried and she was wrapped in a very colourful kind of shroud. She had sunglasses put on her. It was mm. all quite mm. different in mm. a way. And she was buried in a really quiet part of uh, the forest that kind of surrounded the village. And the tribal elder was brought to a similar place, not far away from where the girl was laid to rest, but he was placed on a funeral pyre. Mm. And everybody there had to bring over um, yeah. you know, a, yeah. a, a, a torch. And again, it, it said so much, I think, both of those, even, even though they were treated quite differently Mm. it was the same community around them and there was the same sort of a feeling of i I suppose um the life of the person was very much present and i think that's what you get with the uh you know after living in ireland now for 
what, 23, 24 years more of my life in Ireland than England at this stage. I, I do prefer the Irish way of doing things because like the experience in India, there's more of a sort of a community there. There's more mm. of a sort of, um, I suppose, reflection upon the person. As you say, they're in the room almost. Yeah. With yeah. you. They're a very yeah. visible presence. Whereas yeah. with England, for, for various reasons, and, and some of them practicalities as well, funerals in England tend to be a, a long time Land. after the person yeah. has passed. Um, it, it's all a bit more removed. Mm. Um, and, and I think this book is very interesting because you're drawing on a few different types of evidence, I guess, of, of the person themselves, the physical remains, but also the the practice around them and we'll talk about some of those those subjects but before we get into that i mean you know i, I to be honest i'm a bit of a fan of royal irish academy publications who the publication design team i think do beautiful jobs this book is no different it, it's absolutely lovely and it has fantastic images of sites and cemeteries rituals from ireland and, and elsewhere and, and i really like the first-hand sort of accounts mm the preface so many of them mm. and with the illustrations by Conor McHale as well that I find them quite moving actually you know mm. because again you're putting the person into it rather than it being this abstract mm. skeleton or cremation mm. mm. or, or something what was the kind of the impetus behind the book itself was this something that you wanted to do for a number of years when you were looking at this sort of material culture or was it something that sort of began to take shape and, and, and form in your mind in, in more recent times, I guess. Was there something yeah. behind it? No, it, um, it, it's been on the go quite a while, Neil, and myself and Connor would have, it's it's developed and, and mm. you know, the interplay between the illustrations and the text has developed over time. Mm-hmm. And um, I taught I taught a module on, on death in, in archaeology for several years in 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 UCD several several is probably an under uh, an underestimate mm. and so it was it was that was the context and the background because I, I do think that you know as archaeologists we ha- we have that privilege of of encountering the dead mm. and in a way I think that's very unusual for other people mm. the medical you know the medical profession people involved in undertaking you know they they, they look after the dead but then we have this extraordinary, you know, in a sense, if you think about it, there's an extraordinary privilege and responsibility mm-hmm. uh, on archaeologists because we uncover the dead and we see them for the first time since they've been they've been placed in the ground. So the book the, the book evolved gradually over time. Uh, the idea of the <clears throat> the vignettes was there from the start in an earlier book about the Neolithic. I'd, I'd put something similar but different at the end of the book and I, I think it kind of got lost in a sense so I was mm. keen to have them in a more prominent position and they in turn going, going back to some of the things you were saying in, in your introduction to this question you know I tried to draw on my experience of funerals both in Ireland and and I had the privilege of being at a, a couple of cremation ceremonies in Bali which is mm. reflecting the book and and then but yeah I, I'm I'm glad you picked up the humanity because when I was thinking about funerals here, family funerals, friends of f- funerals of friends, you know, it was those human gestures, the things that people did at funerals that 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 I was trying to capture really, and the and the humanity and the uh, the emotions that are on display at at the time. 
And then, of course, you know, as as coming closer to the publication date of this year, you know, over the last as 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 things have come on stream from the, that, you know, the amount of excavations and surveys that have been going on in Ireland since the late nineties, and that, to, through things like the TII monographs and the database and so on, you know, that richness of information becoming available, and I was trying to reflect that as well yeah. in the book, and of course taking an all island approach. So, so demonstrating that this, you know, this richness of material all, 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 all across the island. Mm. So, so that was the idea. And then, as I say, going back to Cor, you know, we we would, as we were talking about those fictional vignettes, we had, I was trying to get across different ideas about how, how it might be represented, and in turn, then Connor was responding to that, and and then going back to your initial point about. The academy. What what brings a particular richness to it, if you like, is the way that Fidelma Slattery, the designer, has has brought literally color to the book and yeah. color to those illustrations in a deft and very underplayed but but very rich way. Yeah. I think you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it it's a lovely publication. Yeah, and and I guess you know the the book is obviously it it is uh, death in prehistory, and one of the great challenges by its nature of prehistory is that we only have archaeological evidence really yeah. um to to inform us we don't have written accounts hmm. um so broadly speaking uh, you know what can archaeology tell us about people's life and death so it's a very big question yeah. thank <laughs> you, you know, for what's that what's the good of archaeology yes yeah. so <laughs> i think the f- the first part there is I mean, and again with with colleagues, I had this debate even about using the term prehistory. Yeah, um, because sometimes I think for for that you know that notion that this this history when we have written records, and then this prehistory when we only have archaeology. But in in many parts of the world, uh, people have shifted from using prehistory to talking about deep time, deep history, for that very reason. And 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 very often, of course, what those those pejorative terms or what could be described as pejorative terms, mm-hmm. history and prehistory, they ca- they may carry the label of, well, those prehistoric people are less important because they don't have historical records. And then if you think about colonial context, we're into that whole very contested territory of people who are indigenous feeling that their history isn't well recommend, rep- represented because they had oral traditions. Mm-hmm. Um. And and the counter to that, I think, is to say, well, actually, historical records are only one source of our understanding of the past. And the material record that archaeologists deal with, at least in some circumstances, sometimes in places, is much richer than the historical record, even in the historical period. So um, it, it's how we employ that material record, I think, is what's important. And to get away from any sense that it's less important because we don't have documents. Now, that's also a challenge, but we have that advantage then of the, of the richness of the record we have, of the way in which we've been collaborating with a whole range of different disciplines as disparate as historians and people who deal with ancient DNA at every point in between. Mm-hmm. And we bring that to bear on the record. And it's about if you like, thinking about the possibilities that there are. And if you think about our own lives, well, what makes us who we are? I mean, we're, if we weren't in this studio surrounded by all this stuff, 
if we weren't wearing the clothes we're wearing, if we didn't have something to contain the water that we're drinking, well, we'd be stuck, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. So humans are fundamentally mixed in with the things they use. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this, and it's it's kind of a relevant phrase in the world we live in. There's, there's an, an archaeological colleague um, who said, and I'm not going to remember his name and my apologies for that, but he said, humans have always been cyborgs, i.e. we've always worked with things and stuff. Okay. And that's why archaeology, I think, is so important because it gets us to think today mm-hmm. about our relationship to stuff today and more importantly, as archaeologists, how we do that in the past. Yeah. That's, that's so I would say there's a richness in this record that maybe we need to think more about how we, how we, how we you know, get more out of it. I, I quite agree. It's very interesting. Uh, I, I suppose one of the challenges of, of that well, there's a couple of challenges. I mean, uh, there's, there's sort of a, it's difficult, uh, you know, I think anthropology comes into this a little bit as well, because when we're looking at the material remains in the past, we're bringing our own sort of viewpoint, our own lens onto that and the meaning of that. So we might, for example, see uh, some pottery in with, uh, you know, a, a, a kiss burial or something like that. And we might interpret it as, oh, well, this is saying that they were traders or they were mm. doing this mm. or doing that. So there's that little difficulty as well, isn't there, about how do we sort of take ourselves out when we're looking at the material remains? Mm. Is, is there a way that archaeology can be... Not that historical records are by any means objective, but is there a, a sort of a danger archaeology could fall into uh, in terms of its interpretation of material remains and significance of those remains? I think we always have to remember that we're writing in the present, we're influenced by the social context today, and then we're turning our lens, as you say, to the past. Yeah. So we've always got to remember that does this, you know, we've always to tack a, a phrase I've used mm-hmm. b- between past and present, because, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I think we realize if, if we look, for example, at the history of archaeological writing over the last 150 years, just how radically different over time we've approached the past. So yes. I think we've always got to be careful and cautious about and I, as I say, sort of identifying that notion of the interplay between past and present and in terms of how you write about it. Yeah. And um and and yet at the same time you're you're trying to uh, going back to our earlier, you know, discussion, you're you're trying to make sure you don't miss any of the richness of the record. Mm. You know. And and uh oh he's he's there's a anthropologist called Clifford Gartz who talked about this notion of thick descriptions of things. So trying to get it from the inside. Mm-hmm. As opposed to thin descriptions, which are which is very much the outsider's view. Yeah, yeah. So you're trying to bear all this complexity in your head, and yet at the same time be true to the record. Yeah. And and always, I think. So what does this imply for the way we write? For example, I think it means we have to be kind of open ended, but at the same time, get across the richness of what's there. Yeah. It it it, it kind of suggests that there's a real importance in faithful documentation and the importance of kind of pure, if you like, this is exactly what was found were yeah. and exactly yeah. what that is. 
um, and then at the same time being able to say, okay, based on that evidence, our current understanding is this is what it might have meant. Yeah. And, and I think that's something um, when we're thinking about death that, that's really interesting because archaeology is very good at, in, in a sense, in showing us practice, mm. the way that somebody was interred or, mm. or the structures that were built around them to deal with the death or what they might have been buried with. But what it doesn't tell us a little bit about, which I, you know, I, I, you're always kind of reaching for in a way, is belief. Mm. It doesn't really show us, um, I think meaning is perhaps the wrong word for it, but it, it doesn't show us why that pottery vessel was placed there necessarily. You, you can record that there's that vessel that appears in this similar types of graves all across the island, so it meant something. But it doesn't necessarily tell us what their um, spiritual hmm. sense behind that hmm. was. Or does it? Is the ways that archaeology can kind of give us directions with that? I I think there are. Uh, so if we start from a from a kind of a a, a big a, a big perspective, which is to say, well, wh- why why were the dead treated you know treated so carefully that, or at least some of them, hmm. and and I think that's about. Um, the idea that anthropologists, I think, w- would argue that that the vast majority of human societies have some sense of uh, belief in an afterlife. Mm-hmm. That the notion of what that afterlife is and the journey to it and the connection to the living may be tremendously varied. Yes, but there's a sense of there's a, an underlying an underpinning idea of an afterlife, mm-hmm. and so that's why the dead are treated so carefully. They're on this journey to somewhere else, which may, inco- you know, which very often d- doesn't. It, it both separates from the living, but it can also mean they're still around. But they're they're going somewhere else. So if you, so that's a. I mean, I've said that in the book. I I take it as a first principle that all the people we're dealing with had some sense of religious or cosmological belief. The big, mm-hmm. where, where where do we come from? Where are we going? And how do we get there? Yeah. Uh, what happens when people die? That's that's a big issue. So then if you come to our world today and the expression of religious beliefs, well, it's through the notion of habits, of rituals, of materials, churches, you know, the objects that are used in ceremonies. Um, And again, they are particular to particular and they're different according to religious beliefs. But again, they're aimed at that, that expression of a human need to connect with this this outer world, this other world. And in a sense, that's what I bring, I try to bring to interpret the archaeological record. And, um, you know, it, so what does, what does the expression of religious belief look like? Well, it looks like rituals, repeated. It's often done in, in consecrated places. It works because people know what's going to happen next. And, it, and, and very often those rituals keep on going long after all, everything around them changes. Society may be changing, but the, the expression of that religious belief may continue. And so, of course, what's that doing as well is giving people the experience of religious belief by mm-hmm. doing the rituals. So that's how religion works, because you get people involved and that's what they're carrying out. And what we are as archaeologists are left with and in, in the particular context of, of, of uh, the dead, we're left with the remains of the dead. 
we're left with um, the graves, we're left with objects, but critically, we're left with the actions of the living. Because the only way the dead got to where they are is through the living community, who were concerned about placing the dead in particular ways. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I think that's, I don't know whether that really answers your question, but that's my attempt to answer it. No, it's a good, <laughs> it, it's a good answer because it, it's almost impossible to, to, to get it. Because even if you look at um, our society today, yeah. And, yeah. And like uh, if we look at kind of your typical uh, Christian burial ground here in Ireland, people are, are, are buried facing the East, aren't they? So sure. They, you know, I, and it, it's something that you kind of take for granted in a way. Uh, but you wonder in another 2,000 years, uh, you know, say if Christianity has long disappeared in another 2,000 years, who knows? Um, would there be able, uh, would an archaeologist in a few thousand years' time be able to interpret that there was a meaning behind the placement of the burial and the direction that they were facing and all of these kind of things? And I think when you cast that back to the Neolithic or the Bronze uh, yeah. Age, you know, we're, we're making some... Um, all we can do really is to look at, 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 on one scale, the very big picture, mm-hmm. how many of these burials appear in this particular way, mm-hmm. you know, can we see something of a pattern? And then looking at individuals in in the particular use and see if they can add something to that or is there something different about that particular person mm. and is that different to me? I, so I think... We we often end up with open ended interpretations. Mm. We have to put forward different possibilities because yes. of the, the nature of the record as you describe it. But that's life. I mean, if you if you think about life today, yeah. and you'd think about how people interpret Ireland in twenty twenty three, and what should we be doing next? Well, are we? We're not going to get a uniformity of views. No, you know, no. so that's the nature of life. Absolutely. Um, and then. I'm I'm and I going, going back to our last exchange I was I was you know in my head I was thinking about an image that's in the book in the book mm-hmm. you know it goes back actually to Lewis Binford an American archaeologist anthropologist and he has written very perceptively about you know complexities of the treatment of the dead and he has nice diagrams about you know the various dimensions you can use to look at at people and death mm-hmm. and I think that you know, his his ideas cover some of the the ways in which we can interrogate the, the record to try and arrive at an interpretation of, of, of what was going on. Um, and, we're, and I think we're, we're yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to both work with the big issues and then we're trying to come down to individuals and communities and how they worked within these these big structures. Going back to your where you started with, you know, the, the, the Christian practice of burying with the head facing east, that they may face the rising sun, as mm-hmm. John McGowan put it. it. It's hard to think that that, you know, the ubiquity of that practice would, wouldn't, if we were looking at it as an archaeologist, that we wouldn't come up with some notion that this is the expression of a clear religious belief yes. about the rising sun or something like that. Um. Now, on the other hand, of course, we know that there are other religions that, you know, going back to the beginning of that tradition that came from a, in, in the Roman context, you know, that it was, it was there in, in, in pre-Christian times. So um, 
but but I think very often we we can be even if we're being open ended. I think we can still be quite confident about some of the statements we make from the interrogation of the evidence, as you put it, and and that's why it's so critical that we have the best archaeological record that we can have to work with, yes. and that we and that all that you know all the records of excavations that are being carried out are are made accessible and are you know useful for further research, and that's why. It, that that record is so important, and and in a sense, that's why I was able to write the book because yeah. that record is there. And in turn, there'll be further research, and yeah. and what's in the book, in some cases, will certainly be superseded by by a better understanding of what was going on. Yeah. And and that's it, perfectly, isn't it? That's archaeology. It doesn't necessarily give us firm answers on things. It gives us better questions to ask, and you know, we we can then look at those questions within the framework that we have but as you say there might be information coming down the line and, and, it, and it makes you think about some of the fabulous work that's been done with archival records of old yeah. excavations yeah, yeah. you know the uh, Karakil, for example uh, looking at McAllister's excavations uh, it was carried out recently I know there's there's been a number of cases like that mm. where because the material is still there because the records were well maintained that we have that ability you're supposed to look back and and the book is i i think really shows the the wealth of information not only from these kind of big landmark excavations in the past but also from all of the the recent work carried out on infrastructural projects over the last kind of 20 years or so on and um and it i think people will get a lot out of it uh, in mm. terms of there'll be a lot of new news for them you know there's always been a little um oversimplification in some ways when we think about the Irish past in, in terms of, you know, perhaps some of the public perception of it. And your book addresses this. I, I think archaeology, you know, it has to be by its nature. It is a process of categorization in a way. You have mm. to put things that are like together or that things take to a particular thing to be able to talk about it in the, in the big way. But looking at how people, archaeologists in the past in Ireland, perhaps looked at death in prehistory. How has that sort of changed in recent years? Uh, you know, as I say, we look at the likes of McAllister, let's say, in 1911 and his excavations and so on. Uh, there haven't been, I, I, don't, I don't think, uh, a sort of a similar scale of opening large numbers of monuments. It tends to be done infrastructurally, doesn't it, that, that we've come across. Do you think that... The, what we're choosing to excavate or what we're not choosing to excavate mm. uh, is giving us uh, a particular view of the past. Is that a bit of a kind of too meta a question in a way? <laughs> or or can we take from it that because of the nature of infrastructural projects covering so much of the island, that we've actually got a pretty good handle on, um, you know, the the overarching story, if you like, of how people treated the past. How long have we got, Neil? Well, that's the, that's the question. It's, it's, a big one. it's a big open one, sorry. Because, again, there are, there, there are a number of really interesting questions in, in what you've just said yeah. there. So, <clears throat> I think, to answer the, the first part, if I got it, I guess I think the, our approaches to uh, the archaeology of death, let's call it that, is has has radically changed over time. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something we we may come back to, but 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 certainly there are um, there are certainly big changes, and and maybe that we could get rid of that 
or talk about that now and and, and mm. kind of so I, if you if you mention McAllister for example um or even let's go back further I, I I think one of the if we went back to the 18th 19th century when when antiquarians were active they they realized that one of the big stores of information that they could get their hands on were monuments mm-hmm. particularly monuments for the dead so that was an immediate focus and they that's in a sense how the core of some of our national collections came into being initially private collections and public collections and I think that's part of a an international story of that and and in turn then that material and if you think about the time we're now talking about 19th early 20th century of kind of in political terms, nationalism and growing senses of national identity in different ways. And this this material record of the past became part of that. And in turn then, there came, through this vast array of material, not just in Ireland but across Europe, there came this ability for people like Gordon Child to write an overview of prehistory in Europe. Mm. And, and he came up with this brilliant idea that if we if we get pots and bone and ob- other objects in one area over a geographical area and we can broadly talk about the time when now we can begin to talk about culture and if we can talk about that changing over time now we have begin to bring in a, a, a historical perspective so now we've got this notion of a, a cultural history view of the world mm. and in some ways we, we, we still use those some of those terms that those people used it, I think those that notion of a cultural history is, is still there and I would see a big shift then as happening in the 60s and 70s, again, influenced internationally by the fact of the post-Second World War period, a kind of optimism about what science could do, the scientific approach, uh, the notion of gathering data. And, and it, I suppose, in a sense, the first big data sets were, were gathered at that time, the value of scientific techniques, the application of those to understand processes of change, Hence this term, processual or new archaeology. And in turn then from the sort of 80s, 90s, uh, and again reflecting broader broader trends, this notion of co- coming back to some of the things we talked about earlier, and, you know, this idea, well, actually we're, we're, we're doing all this stuff in the present and we're trying to think about mm-hmm. a period way in the past and we're recognising that what people said 100 years ago is now we don't believe it. So we've got to be open and we've got to understand what we're doing is an interpretation of the record. And that there may be two equally and different in valid interpretations of that record. So we've got to be much more open. So this notion of a kind of interpretive phase, and I think we're, we're still in that, but we're actually still using bits of yeah. techniques and so on from processual archaeology. And critically, we're still using some of the labels that yeah. we've had been handed on from the cultural historical phrase. So, so yes, radical changes, and um, but a kind of complicated thing because we've got, we've got these different approaches still in a way going on and, yeah. and still being used. So um, now, and, and, and I should have said that in the 1990s as well, we had a big change where, you know, in a sense, it was then that the, we have what's in, in, in legal terms, what's, you know, the Council of Europe Malta Convention, this notion of the polluter pays being applied to archaeology, the implications of that as being the driver for development-led archaeology, where mm-hmm. you know you, if you build a big infrastructure project, then you've got to allow for the archaeological information, and as a mitigation, you've got to make sure yes. you recover all the archaeological information you can. 
and and that and of course driving the 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 amount of information we've got now as well as that um a bit that through the use of scientific techniques and so on that ability to interrogate much more comprehensively older archaeological records and critically a generation of well-trained osteoarchaeologists who really have are at the core of the book yeah. and who I've whose work I've interpreted hopefully correctly um, but they they're the ones really who, yeah. who've done the, the core work of you know particularly on the, on the record of human of human remains have presented with the information um so it's it's a, yeah it's a, it's a complicated um I, I think the book is both is is timely hopefully and uh but also it's definitely part of a trend of research that's going to keep going and, yeah. and we're going to learn more over time and as, as as people come back and ask more questions of this data um and even as we speak you know there's more work ongoing on both older excavations and on current work as well you know yeah, that, I mean, yeah. that's the exciting thing with archaeology. Yeah. You never know it all. Yeah. There's, always, yeah, you know. there's always more to be done. Um, looking at Ireland and, and the prehistory in Ireland, you know, we're covering millennia here. Mm. It's a very long span of time. And when we're looking at evidence, of course, we have the people themselves, whether they're cremated human remains, whether they're, uh, you know, inhumations. And we, we sometimes get objects placed in with them Sometimes there's structures around them and so on. When we're looking at all of these different periods, do, do we see that we have better evidence or, or better representation from some time periods mm. than from others? It's it's sure it's not an even um, balance across the whole what, eight and a half thousand years, is it? Not not at all. And um, for example, for the, the first 4,000 years when... People in Ireland at relatively small levels of population, maybe maximum 10,000 people at any one time. People are living by hunting and gathering. Um, we've got the remains of 10 to 12 people from, yeah. from that whole period. And and uh, it's reflective of the level of population. It's reflective of the way they, the, the, the dead were treated in, in complex ways. But we, we you know, we, we've been lucky to have a few really important locations identified, but you know, it's a very small number. And then with the beginnings of farming around 4000 BC and then a kind of a, I think a change relation between relationship between the living and the dead where in a farming world, the notion of the patterns of growing and both look to the future, but they also look to the past. The, the relationship between the dead and the living change. So the ancestors, if you like, the notion of looking after the ancestors in some way and keeping them visible in the landscape became much more important. So you have the building of monuments. And and in a sense then that continued in different ways. So by and large, the Neolithic starting 4000 BC, the Bronze Age starting 2500, we've got very significant numbers of burials for that period. And then going back to your point about, you know, how has development led archaeology changed our understanding of of death and prehistory and the treatment of the dead i think it's true to say that um by and large you know development-led projects have have tended to but deliberately and carefully to avoid upstanding monuments mm -hmm. which means for example that there have been very few megalithic tombs excavated in the course of motorways or yeah. but but on the other hand 
a lot of what we would call flat cemeteries or where there's no above ground trace have been discovered as a result of those kinds of large scale landscape survey and excavation projects. And they have dramatically improved, for example, our understanding of Bronze Age burial practice from from 2500 BC on. Yeah, and and that's a really important point, isn't it? Because the whole point, I suppose, of having, you know, a lot of archaeologists involved in in the kind of development side of things is to avoid monuments, basically to to preserve them for the future, but also because it is an incredibly costly and and resource-heavy thing to do is to excavate large monuments. So things like... Uh, these flat cemeteries and things like that, as you say, they have no surface expression. They kind of uh, are almost accidentally put upon when uh, the route for the road is, is chosen and then uh, they're excavated. So that that's it. It, it can in some ways, um, it's not that it skews the, the type of evidence coming, but the, there's a, you're more likely to encounter, I guess, particular yeah, uh, yeah. sorts of burial grounds. Yeah, and what's interesting... <clears throat> Is that, I suppose, in a broader sense, what what the the you know the recent work on a whole range of different kinds of projects, the large landscape ones, but also sometimes smaller projects, have have provided us with a different perspective, not just on death itself, but on the relationship between life and death. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the Neolithic, our, you know, I think it's true to say that up to um, you know the early 2000s when I wrote that book about the Neolithic in, in landscapes of the Irish Neolithic it, the view was very much still dominated by megalithic tombs mm. but but of course as Jessica Smith and others have shown there's this fantastic settlement record now in the Neolithic yeah. which has come up as a result of uh, you know large uh, development led archaeology and then in turn in the Bronze Age what's interesting is not only do we have these you know discovery of flat cemeteries but also very large numbers of settlements. Yeah. yeah. So we have a much, I, I think as well, what the advantage of, of what, we ha- what we're dealing with now is a much more balanced record. Yeah. You know, and indeed, even for the Iron Age, which has always been, you know, problematic in terms of the number of sites. Yes, the number of sites we, we have is still smaller than we might expect, but, but it's a much more balanced picture. We're getting both the burial sites and the settlement sites. So we, I think we're working with the more, you know, balanced record and of course critically it has demonstrated that the impact the numbers of people in prehistory was significantly larger than we had thought about before that's interesting and and rowan mclaughlin has written this you know based on the on the number of radiocarbon dates from the number of excavated sites has put forward these population estimates and he suggested in the in the Bronze Age, there may have been up to two million people. Now, I, I think that's that that figure might yeah, be debated as to the the actual detail. But yeah. what's important is, you know, whether it's um, I don't mean flippantly whether it's a million or two million, but but in a sense, what's important is that it demonstrates that we've underestimated entirely the impact of people in the landscape, yeah. and and in a way that we have to start to think bringing that into our landscape histories. Mm-hmm. And and, and we're, we're very often inclined to talk about natural landscapes in Ireland. Well, there's very few areas in Ireland that are natural in the sense of not being untouched by human activity at some point in the past. Yeah. That doesn't make them less important, but it means that we have to bring in this idea of cultural landscapes and places that have always, you know, at one point or another in time, have been impacted by people. 
But yeah, that no, that is an, an, an in danger of going off on a little tangent here because I think it's such an interesting subject. You know, when often we hear people talking about rewilding, mm. they don't finish that sentence with rewilding to when. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. What do we want to see? Do we want to yeah. see it as it was in the medieval period, the early medieval period, yeah. the Neolithic, the Bronze? Yeah. As you say, there's been such, there's it being a, a relatively small island, there are, as you say, very few places that haven't, to some degree, been altered, you know. So it, it, part of that discussion, really, in terms of the future for what the Irish landscape could look like and the future sort of aspects of what to do with the uplands and mm. the bogs, mm. you know, mm. where to plant forest and woodlands, that has to be partially at least informed by looking at our paleo history, looking at the, you know, what the archaeology could tell us about that and then saying, you know, this is what we feel a healthy landscape might look like yeah. based on that kind of evidence and based on the kind of species that we have today and, and the climate that we have today you know so it, it's an interesting subject for sure that I think archaeology doesn't come into the discussion of but I, I feel it has a, a role to play in that um, on that you know we, we, we discussed uh, looking at you know the things that archaeologists almost uh, choose or get to excavate can yeah. have a, a sort of an emphasis on our understanding of the way that people, were, the dead were treated in the past. But is there also a sort of inherent bias in terms of who we find buried? So, for example, and, and you know, I, I mentioned earlier the, you know, the experience in, in India where we have one person uh, who was buried and we have another person who was cremated and, that, and then that pile was left open to be kind of scattered by time sure. and, and, sure. and, and so on. So... Is there a sort of um, in, inherent kind of bias? Because if we consider something like a, a, a passage tomb in the Neolithic mm. as a container for the dead, the, mm. that is something that is more likely, if you like, to survive the journey through time today than somebody perhaps in the Mesolithic who might have had something like a sort of a sky burial or sure. an open cremation pile yeah. or something like that. So yeah. is are the people we're finding, in a sense given us a, a skewed reflection of, of, of people in the past. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure about skewed, but because I think there was a, what we're seeing, if you like, is a, is a, a selection of people mm -hmm. at different times, for different reasons, perhaps, being treated differently in death. And it's because of that careful treatment that they end up in the archaeological record. Yeah. So, and then... And, and and in most well it's a majority of people we, we simply don't know how they were treated so so if you and I think that applies for right across time and then we can come back and pick, pick apart one or two things but and I've used this example for example if you think about a small megalithium like a courtroom relatively small mm -hmm. community effort you know maybe 25 30 40 people involved and once it's there, it's certainly evidence that some of them are used over many generations. And yet they contain only the remains of, you know, m many courtrooms of 10, 12 people. Okay. And, and even, if you, even if you buy into the notion, as, as people have pointed, well, the tombs could have been cleared out. They could have been, you know, selective, uh, sorry, uh, you know, careful taking out of all the remains and then the next person. But, but even in, you know, we we can point to monuments like um, 
and parking a binny on the burn that Carlton Jones excavated, or indeed a portal tomb like Pound where the remains look as if they haven't been disturbed. And yes, we're getting large number of individuals, but it still looks like it's, if you think about, you know, a generation being 30 years, then you're talking probably about one or two or three people going into that tomb yeah. every generation. So it's yeah. definitely selection. Yeah. Now, within that, you... Um, and I think that, sorry, I'll, I'll stick with that one for a minute. That, that applies if you look at Bronze Age cemeteries, for example. They can be in use up to five, six hundred years. And yet again, the size, you know, you're talking about 20, 25 people. So it's, it's people who, for whatever reason, are being selected to be placed in this important place. Um, and, and sometimes those people who are selected, that yes, they're, they're adults, both male and female, adults of various ages and um, most people would have died who got to adulthood in their 30s but you have you can get people who are older than that exceptionally up to their 60s you can get you know adolescents children infants so there's clearly something socially important that is not just to do with who you are but in a sense who you represent as a mm-hmm. kin or lineage or whatever um and so there's so there's a I think a general trend that we see in the record. So that so that and then the, I suppose the thing to add into that is then that depending on the the right that's chosen to look after somebody when they died, that can have a bias on the figures. So for example, generally cremated bones survive very well in a whole variety of conditions, but um, bodies that are buried. Um, and then the, the flesh decays and the bones are left. Those in acidic soils, for example, those in human bones can disappear. Yes. So we're sometimes left in a circumstance where we've got only cremated bones left, in, say, in a, in a court room in the Neolithic. Well, we can't necessarily assume that there weren't in human bones there as well, yeah, because we do get right. them, actually. We, we get both yeah. inhumed and cremated bones occurring in those contexts. So there, there can be, that can be a bias. But I don't think really think that, you know, changes this picture that were yeah. that that preservation bias. I don't think changes the picture of the social selection, yeah. which I think is a much more important. Yeah. Going back to this question about interpretation, yeah. I think that's much more important that we're dealing with what colleagues in you know have described as the the visible, you know, yeah, the, the socially visible yes. part of the burial record that survives. Yeah. And then, you know, I think, um, yeah, there's so many ways that people can disappear after death. As yeah. you, you mentioned, sky burial, where people are left exposed. And we know that happens in places like Nepal and so on today. Mm-hmm. Um, placing cremated bones in water, which is very often a, a part of, of of Hindu practices people would be familiar with in in India, for example, in the Ganges, and yeah. placing the cremated bones after burning in the, in, in the Ganges. Um uh, placement of, of bones and trees that we know is practiced by society, hunter-gatherer societies in different parts of the world. So a whole variety of, of, of different, you know, practices. So I think it's being aware of that and the, the, the you know, the, the fact that we're, we are dealing with a selection of people. So in a way, then, I think that just adds to our interpretive understanding of what's going on, recognising that there may be exceptions. And, and I suppose we haven't mentioned, you know, you mentioned objects, Neil. Well, mm. objects are important, are important, of course, because if we get an object like a Bronze Age pot 
place with an individual, even if we have nothing else, or we can say that's a Bronze Age grave. If we have somebody who is just buried without anything, which is quite a high, you know, must have happened on many occasions, Mm -hmm. then unless that person's bones are dated, we're not actually going to know if they're prehistoric or not. But that's true. That's true. I, you know, I often think, and, and it's a historic example, but I think it, it, it's a really good one to, to illustrate a point. Uh, um, if we look at Woodstown, the large Viking longfort just outside of Waterford, there was a Viking, uh, it's called a Viking warrior burial there. Yeah. Um, because there was the sword, shield, spear, knife, whetstone and so on, but there was no human remains whatsoever. Yeah, family that, right? yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The acidic soil had, had got taken, rid of everything, yeah, yeah. and had those objects not been placed with that individual, um, wouldn't have known there was anyone yeah. there at all. So yeah. uh, if yeah. we, you know, and that's something from maybe a thousand years ago. In, yeah, and here we're talking about things yeah. as yeah. far back as eight thousand years. So it, yeah. it it goes to show that we can only really interpret what we have to interpret and there's a whole world out there that we don't yeah and I suppose also but, but also I think being open to that notion that mm. in terms of burial practice for example that yeah we have to be open to that idea well where are there people treated in different ways and we've only got yeah. surviving answer and it's interesting you know going back to something we were talking about earlier it's interesting that going back to the it's clear going back to the 19th century for example, and, and, and monuments are open then, people didn't really think about cremated bone. No, they didn't. Yeah. They, they collected inhumed bone. Yeah. But they didn't really see cremated bone as being the bone, you know, something yeah. important. So, yeah, yeah there, there are collection biases as well, if you like, that we have to be careful of in interpreting particularly older older sets of material. Yeah, and you wonder in some cases when you're looking at those older accounts, did they even realise it was human bone? Well, exactly. Do you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. The, there was yeah. no skull or, or yeah. finger bones or something yeah. like that that immediately yeah. made them, you know, yeah. because they talk about it so dismissively almost like it was. And, and at the danger of me going down a tangent, <laughs> well, and that made me think of, you know, it's, it's only in the, you know, I think sometimes we, we, it's easy to forget that the modern Western practice of cremation actually only comes in and, and you know, really comes to the fore and uh, with a, stru- with a pol- you know, with a social and political struggle starting in the late 19th century. So, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, it's to do with sanitary conditions in, in urban in environments where cemeteries were full and so on. And, and cholera was a co- rife. Yeah. And, and, so and so people working in the 19th century may, may well not have been even familiar yeah. with with. The notion of of cremation, yeah, something I actually hadn't really thought about before. So that's it for part one of Death in Prehistory with Professor Gabriel Cooney. Part two will be released in the coming days, and there we'll be looking at more chronological approach to death. We'll be looking at each of the periods in turn, looking where the continuity is, what the change is, what sort of different cultural aspects come into things it's a really interesting discussion and i hope you'll join us for that as well so do make sure that you stay subscribed to amplify archaeology podcast